Good morning. How's everybody doing today? So good to see you. I don't know if you noticed. Did you know Chris Ireland band? Thank you guys for leading. Did you notice Chris Ireland, what he just did? He was pastoring. So proud of him. He left because he knew I was going to call him out. Hey, it's great to see you. Grab your Bibles. I don't know if, uh, uh, if you felt it when the public reading of Scripture was going on, but you, you probably heard those words and went, oh, this is going to be a fun one. You know, one of the things about preaching through the Scripture is you can't avoid God's Word. We, we like to take books of the Bible. Um, we are expository. We try to preach verse by verse. And it's God's authoritative word in our lives. And you, you can't miss sections that may be a little controversial or hard things to understand. Doctrine, hard doctrine. We're going to move through those. And so uh, this morning is going to be fun and it's going to apply to every single one of us, no matter where we're at in our faith journey or phase of life. Grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter th- uh, 2. We finished chapter one last week, and now we're moving into chapter two. Paul is encouraging a young pastor named Titus on how he's supposed to lead the church. We're entitling the series The Entrusted Follower, not The Entrusted Church, The Entrusted Follower, because if you are here and you believe in Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, you have been entrusted the truth of God as a part of the body of Christ. That is us. It's not a building. It's not programs. And you're going to hear more about this in today's sermon. Paul's going to shift his focus in chapter two. Up to this point, He's focused on the character of leaders and leadership and pastors within the church. He has been very explicit on what is expected from the leadership. And now he's going to shift gears, taking the focus off of leadership and putting the focus on the congregation, the body of Christ, those who gather The entire chapter that we're going to look at focuses on the evangelistic impact of a spiritually healthy congregation. Paul's going to give direct, practical instruction about how followers of Jesus are to live for the purpose of showing a lost world, for the purpose of showing sinners who are separated from God's grace, to embrace God's grace and experience, listen, the power and the joy of salvation. Titus 2, 2 through 10, the Holy Spirit prescribes a series of, listen, binding requirements that are necessary for everyone that is a part of the body of Christ, for the church. Next week, we're going to see verses 11 through 14 give clear reason for holy living as a follower of Jesus because it is the 
visual credibility of God's redemptive plan. We're going to focus in on that next week. But today we're going to see that the character of a healthy church is found in its people. It's people, not programs, not productions, not performance, in the character of the church's people. What do you see? This is visual. There's application here, but don't allow this application to be disconnected from your personal pursuit of God. This is how the church gets traction for the mission of God to see people find and follow him, to see people saved by his grace. In his book, Spiritual Fingerprints of a Visible Church, John Stott breaks down Acts chapter 2 and notes the visual marks of the early church, the visual marks that were personal to the people of God, the marks of doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. He says, it really doesn't matter how high the steeple may be or how beautiful the chimes may play. It is the message that is going from the pulpit through the people which will tell whether a church is really a church. Followers of Jesus Christ live doctrine. Followers of Jesus Christ live truth from God's word. They don't just believe it. There's so much more than just a distant belief. They live it, which is the exact opposite of false teachers that Paul is warning Titus about at the end or in chapter 1. He lists the characteristics of false teachers. By the truth of God's word. Followers, they don't follow false doctrine. That's why the first four words in Titus chapter 2 Turn the page when he says, but as for you, here's what the false teachers do, but you, Titus, as for you, Paul separates this section of the letter from the previous with a very strong contrast. But as for you, he's describing the false teachers as detestable, disobedient, worthless, and not good for anything, good for nothing, and Then he shifts and says, but you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This word sound means healthy. The church must teach biblical doctrine or it is not the church must teach biblical doctrine, must 
see the truth of Scripture as absolute. There are churches across our country, even in this last week, where pastors stood up and said, God's word is not the authority. It's full of error and contradiction. This is even being taught in Christian colleges and cultural relevance has swept in. The church is not a church unless it is standing on biblical doctrine. Paul uses this word sound, healthy, nine times in his pastoral epistles. Five of them are in the book of Titus. And they are always, every single time, in relation to personal righteousness and spiritual well-being. Sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine, he says, produces healthy spiritual living. Paul commands Titus to teach sound doctrine. Or literally, healthy instruction. This Greek word is weird to pronounce. Huji, I know. It's weird. But it means sound. Huji, I know. Comes from the word we get, hygiene. It refers to healthy Wholesome, clean. If you've ever sat by somebody or have been around somebody who does not have clean hygiene, don't look around. <laughs> you know how uncomfortable that could be. He's basically saying, let your teaching be uncontaminated, wholesome, health-giving, May it be pure in your teaching to disinfect what may be contaminated and instead purifies for spiritual growth. But this must be rooted in the Bible. This isn't what I think. This isn't what I feel. This isn't man philosophy. This isn't self-help. There's a standard in the Bible of healthy truth that God has given us, and he's saying to Titus, teach healthy doctrine that's only found in the inspired word of God. The Bible never, ever divorces doctrine from duty or truth from behavior. Paul wrote a lot about this. He wrote the book of Romans the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans are all on the foundation biblical doctrines. And there's some tough ones in there. Go read Romans chapter 9. And then ask Chris about it. He built a foundation in 11 chapters on sound doctrine, basic doctrine that we follow. And then... He says to the believers in Rome, I urge you, therefore, based on who God is and his grace and man and his sin nature and falling away and the only way of salvation, all these crucial doctrines, he then says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is holy and acceptable to God. Do not conform any longer to the behaviors and patterns of this world, but be transformed by this doctrine so that your life reflects God's will. A.W. Tozer believed that living the Christian life was more than being saved by God and then waiting to go to heaven. In a lot of things he wrote, he was prophetic, way ahead of his time. In his church in Chicago, he stood up, looked at the people he loved and served, talking about following Jesus and the visual character of the church so that people can see godly doctrine and come to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And in teaching the visual, spiritual outpouring of the church, he says, if everyone here today were physically what they were spiritually, and we could see it, many of you would be wearing diapers and sucking your thumb. Pretty strong words. Spoken out of love. He loved his sheep. He loved being a pastor. He wanted them to get out of the spiritual kiddie pool with the floaties on the arms and grow up into Christ so that a lost world will see followers of Jesus Christ and go, I want that joy in the midst of persecution and suffering. I want that freedom from addiction or hurt or pain. I want to be made whole. The fruit of right doctrine is right living. And Paul is going to clearly express the desire for each person in the church to pursue visible, godly behavior. He's going to give five crucial reasons. We'll look at that at the end real quickly. But in these 10 verses, he's basically going to say that the character of the church is being watched by those inside and by those outside. And so he outlines how Titus is to organize this renewal of character in the church by breaking down five distinct groups of people. And every one of us in this room here today or watching at home will be able to fall into one of these five categories. Verse two, old men. Verse three, older women. Verse four, young women. Verse 5, young men, and then verse 9, bond servants. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at these explicit words from God. Older men, verse 2, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, Sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Older men basically means aged men. Older women means aged women. 
Aged men are to grow wiser, more mature, strong in their faith. This doesn't always happen. Some, as they get older, become critical, cynical, cranky, and negative. (laughs) Finally got an amen. I was going to say amen all by myself. That was Vern McKinney, by the way. (sighs) It's okay, St. Rhonda. You know, it's like wine, fine aged wine. It's either really good or it's cork rot. God designs age to be a benefit to others. A benefit. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Moses began his most productive 40 years of his life at the age of 80. As the Israelites prepared to conquer the promised land, Caleb chose and conquered the most rugged, best defended territory at the ripe old age of 85. We find that in Joshua chapter 14. Most of the Old Testament patriarchs and heroes accomplished their best during their older years. Getting older shouldn't be a bad thing, but I understand as I'm getting a little older how it can be frustrating. It is a mindset, but as things start to not work, and I'm getting a little bit of that, some of you are way farther along, it gets frustrating. But getting older in God's design is getting closer. I think of it as a marathon. I've not done a marathon. I've done some triathlons and I've done a half marathon. I remember running the half marathon and getting to the end and, and not one time in my mind did I go, what? It's almost over? Oh, no, it's the exact opposite. Oh, I can't wait. This is, oh man, I can't. And our faith and our hope in Christ is kind of supposed to be the same way. I'm just, I'm getting that much closer to glory, that much closer to perfection, Christ and God. But our nature has messed up God's design. Paul expects older men to cultivate themselves six specific qualities to help them visibly define the church as a whole. Six qualities. I'm going to hit them real quick, but I want to focus on the last three. I think they're amazing. And for the older men who are here, these are supposed to be an encouragement to the standard you have been given to glorify God visibly in your life, no matter where you're at or what's going on. Sober-minded means avoiding extravagance and overindulgence in any specific area. It means temperate. A temperate person keeps things in balance. They keep things in balance emotionally. They keep their desires in balance. And they keep truth in balance. They're dignified. This comes from a term that usually refers to people or things that are reverent. On the negative side, undignified, I guess, means to avoid becoming frivolous, 
trivial, superficial, flaky. On the positive side, a dignified person is worthy of respect. This is something you see in them. But the last three are worth focusing on. Sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Vine's expository dictionary defines sound to mean well or in good health. Christians who their opinions are free from the mixture of error. End quote. Sound in faith. Wholesome in faith. The concept is clear and connected to the next two. And they're an extension of sound doctrine, sound teaching. This sound Belief in Christ is a lifestyle that begins with trusting Jesus as Savior and then extends progressively over your life to every aspect and compartment of your life. Sound in faith, older men who are sound in faith, they're still in the flesh, they still will wrestle with things, but as they get older, and they get more life experience, their questions and their doubts shift. They're sound in their faith. Life has brought this out of them. They do not question his wisdom. They may not fully understand, but as they get older, they do not question his wisdom, one commentary says, or power or love They do not lose trust in his goodness or grace or lose confidence in his divine plan or his divine kingdom. They do not doubt the truth. They do not doubt the sufficiency of his word or waver from their divinely assured hope that the sovereign God has a plan and he will fulfill it. They may not fully understand it, but they've grown in their faith. And as they've grown in their faith, they've grown in their love. Sound in love refers to healthy agape or agape love. This rich, deep Greek word that puts others in focus and exercises the will to love others just like Christ modeled in his own life, even to the point of death. And then he says, sound in steadfastness, sound in perseverance, that the older man is healthy in his perseverance through life. A profoundly significant Greek Term that embodies the very essence of spiritual maturity, steadfastness, love, endurance. 
in the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose or his loyalty of faith and his devotion by even the greatest trials and sufferings. In Paul's other letters, he defines perseverance to produce godly behavior. It sets up sound faith, this perseverance. It sets up and solidifies love. One commentary that I pulled from puts it very clearly. An old man who is sound in steadfastness exhibits the ability to endure hardship, to accept disappointment and failure, and to satisfy, to be satisfied despite thwarted personal desires and plans. They have learned to graciously live with such difficulties as physical weakness, loneliness, loss, and unappreciated. They do not lose heart when things do not go, do not turn out their way. They have hope and they expect and believe in their faith and their love that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, perseverance is the best indicator of genuine faith an ultimate proof of authentic belief. John Edwards wrote a lot about perseverance of the saints. Older men are supposed to be sound in love, sound in faith, sound in steadfastness. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. Reverent is the same, reverent in the same way as older men. They're to be dignified. Worthy of respect. Older women should be reverent, which is a Greek word that means sacred. And it's added to an adjective that basically denotes suited to sacred character. That which is befitting in a person and their actions, and their things that are devoted to God. The idea of reverence here suggests that by her conduct, she belongs to God. Not to her husband. She belongs to her God that created her. And she's devoted to him. And worships him with all of life. Not slanderers, opposed to malicious gossip, and not slaves to wine. Older women are not to be enslaved by alcohol. Why? So they can teach what is good. 
He says they are to teach what is good. To teach what is good refers to the instruction that is noble, excellent, and lofty. In this context, it includes teaching what is holy and godly. Having taught their own children, older women now have the responsibility of teaching younger women in the church and encouraging them to be righteous and godly wives and mothers. They're supposed to set this standard, teach what is good for the sake of the younger women. Verse four, and so, this is set up to be the encouragement to the younger woman. And so, train the younger woman, verse four, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. We'll take a look at it. You can exhale. Kind. It's interesting that he put kind in between working at home and submitting to the husband. We're going to look at it. Because in our culture, those two things wrestle up some unkindness, unkind feelings. Submissive to their husbands. Younger women underline this. There's a, there's a profound reason. So that the word of God may not be reviled. So there's three terms that I want to look at a little closer. Pure, working at home, and submissive to their husbands. This word pure comes from the Greek word hognos, which doesn't sound pure, but it is. It usually translates holy. Younger women are to become like their older examples. They're reserved for God's holy purpose. They're not their own. They were bought at a, with a price, just like everybody else that believes in Jesus. They're reserved for God's holy purpose. Their behavior should demonstrate that they belong to the Lord. Working at home. This should not be understood or applied from our cultural understanding, our Western culture, especially the previous generation or the generation before, where the culture said the woman shouldn't work outside of the home. You have to remember this was written in a specific place, a different culture, a specific time, and it still applies today. But one of the things we do when we interpret scripture is we interpret the scripture as a whole, the whole counsel of God, not one verse by itself. If we take one verse by itself, we get lost. I've done this a hundred times to my detriment and shame. I'll never forget one of my close friends in high school didn't 
follow Jesus. I said, Andy, do you believe in God? Yeah. How do I get to heaven? Well, do you believe in God? He said, yeah, you're in. Because I read one verse, John 3, 36, and I only read half the verse. Whoever believes has eternal life. That's good enough for me. His life wasn't changed. He never surrendered a day of his life. He didn't confess his sin. He, he didn't go beyond just basic belief. The Bible says even the demons believe. Never forget when I found out that he had been in a car accident and didn't make it. See, John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has life, but he who doesn't obey the Son doesn't really believe and the wrath of God remains in him forever. You see, we interpret Scripture with the whole of Scripture. So as we come back and we look at this direction, working at home, working at home should not be understood or applied like it has been in the previous generation who saw women working outside of the home in offices or factories as a threat to the integrity of the household. One commentator put, Paul did not write this to prohibit women from working outside the home. The term here is a noun, oikoigos, which means home maker, and it is directly tethered and connected to the same picture we see of a godly woman described in Proverbs 31. If you've not read the Proverbs 31 woman and what she looks like, the concept of being a homemaker in our Western culture is not the same as what we see in Proverbs 31 when it says this, an excellent wife, who can find? The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with her hands. She is like a ship of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers the field and she buys it. She does business. And the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. And I bet you it's good. Wine? I wouldn't know. Just kidding. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Are you getting a picture of what a godly woman looks like? She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hand to the needy. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is always on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is not lazy. Her children raise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Charm is deceitful. 
beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Pretty powerful. It's, that's not the picture of a stay-at-home mom in our culture. And I'm not saying that women should work or shouldn't work. I mean, you know Heidi works. I'm not trying to justify my experience with this scripture. That's, that's not my attempt. I think God leads you to be a godly man and a godly woman, and you pursue his will. And it's about your character. That's the focus here. Pure in character. A homemaker. An intricate part of the family. And subject. Submissive to their husbands. Submissive to their husbands calls for a young woman to demonstrate Self-willed deference to the desires of their husband. That's what it means. But please don't get the wrong picture of this, especially men. Don't do it. It's happened way too much in the church. Where men have abused this. And they've said, I'm the head of the home. And you're going to do what I say. And Jesus never did that. Ephesians 5 makes a clear picture. Heidi and I talk about this a lot in our premarital counseling. Paul calls for young women to subject their wills to the leadership of their husband. But as stated in Ephesians 5, 22 through 30, Paul describes a symbolic relationship in which the husband's loving leadership is devoted to serving his wife not lowering over her, serving her and protecting her even to the point of death, just like Jesus did as he died on the cross. And in that rhythm of a relationship where the man is serving, he's under her, he's valuing her above everything else, he's protecting her. Under that understanding and the covenant of a relationship where he is devoted to serving his wife, it inspires the kind of respect that makes it a delight for the woman to submit to her man. God designed distinct different roles in the family. And he created an order, not because there's a higher value on one over the other, And just like older men and younger women, just like older men and older women, younger women are objects of scrutiny to a watching world. Paul reminded them that the credibility of God's word is at stake. Non-believers, they may not obey God's commands, but they do understand the inherent link between belief 
and behavior among believers and that they are to match. He continues in verse 6, Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Pretty common sense there because we know all of us older men or mid-older men, we know what it was like when we were younger. Be self-controlled. Show yourself with all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say. He turns his attention to young men. And Paul uses this word again, likewise or sensible, because young men tend to be impulsive and rash, unrestrained in their conduct, reckless and unstable. Paul, in effect, is saying, Titus, help young men to learn how to apply the brakes to life. Yesterday, Zach and I were out in the neighborhood. I was teaching him how to drive a stick shift so he could drive my Jeep. Helping him to apply the brakes and the clutch and the gas all at the right time while shifting. He's figuring it out. But it's the same concept. Helping them to understand how to control their tongues and their tempers. Helping them know how to curve their ambitions and purge themselves of greed. Show them how to make or how to master their urges and impulses and to pursue understanding instead of reckless desires. Paul is telling Titus to teach them to be responsible with their money, to show them the rewards of unselfish leadership and the folly of self-centered pursuits. And how is Titus supposed to do this? By example. Paul called for good deeds. Doctrine free from corruption, dignity, healthy speech that is above reproach. You see, the skeptic and the false teacher find no opportunity to attack the gospel when it's supported with godly behavior. They can attack it, but it doesn't stick. This is not the duty of the spiritual leader alone. This whole thing is a part of an integrated into the community. Those who are followers of Jesus. I don't know which category you're in so far, but I hope you focus in on these scriptures and you ask yourself the question, how can I be a part of God's design for the family here at Sun River Church? This is partly why we are doing one-on-one connects, connecting men and women, older men and older women together. This is why we want you to sign up for prayer partners with our youth. So cool on Wednesday, seeing the cafe full. I didn't see it, I heard about it, but it was cool to hear about. And people connecting in one-on-one. 
I can tell you through my 20 years here and even before, there have been older men in my life that have modeled and taught me these things, and I would not be who I am without them. Many of you that are in here today, even this past week, whether it was hanging out with Vernon Rhonda yesterday or Friday, or Nathan and Quan Brown, we had them over for dinner. He was pastor for many years. He's like a pastor to pastors. It's so refreshing for Heidi and I. And you are called to be an intricate part of this as the body of Christ so that the visual character of the church is seen by a lost world. And when the lost world sees that kind of light, you know what they want? They want to come in. They want to be a part of that. And that's what we're called to do. And then in verse 9, leading into verse 10, he makes a comment about bond servants. The word is doulos, slaves. And as I read this, I, I don't want you to let your mind go to your understanding of slavery in the Western world because it's this different context. It wasn't a racist deal. Most of the slaves in the Roman world were captured in war and then put into work. Was there abuse? Yes. Was there mistreatment? Yes. It was evil. You look at slavery, not just in the Western world, but in history of man, and you will find that almost always it is Christian followers of Jesus who are fighting against slavery where one person owns another person and there's abuse. It's almost always Christians. The Bible is not supporting slavery that you and I know about or our culture has experienced. He says bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God as Savior. The final segment to the congregation focus on the slaves in the church on the island of Crete. It was probably more of an, in, uh, an, an employment agreement Slaves in that time could have families, they could educate their families, they could own land, they could buy their freedom. Were they abused and mistreated? Yes, but Paul is saying, listen, the gospel will transform you, and when it transforms you and you treat your owner like Christ wants you to, maybe it'll change his life and his heart, and that will end slavery. I think that's what Paul is getting at. The Roman Empire became dominated by indentured servanthood, whereby the relationship between the bondservant and the master became the ancient equivalent of an employee and a boss. One commentator puts it this way, 
Most likely, Paul foresaw the genuine belief in Christ would eventually transform the culture and make slavery be abolished. Regardless, if Paul intended to overturn the institution of slavery, he knew it would not occur overnight. He encouraged Titus to pursue the cause of Christ on the island of Crete by establishing and fortifying churches whose conduct might win converts to Christ. Bond slaves were faithfully and continuously stewards of the asset of their master's property. And through this relationship could win them over. Paul exposes his desire for the congregation to be a visual part of God's redemptive work no matter where you're at, slave or free man or woman, old or young. And throughout these scriptures, he gives five crucial reasons so that they may be encouraged, verse four, so that the word of God may be not dishonored, verse five, to be an example of good deeds, verse seven, so that the opponent may be put to shame, verse eight, and so lastly, they may adorn themselves with the doctrine of God as savior, Adorn, put on this character, this truth that God is your Savior. The supreme message to the unsaved about God is that he is our savior and he desires to save others as well. And we as a church, old and young, adorn this doctrine because we have been saved. Second Peter says that God wishes, not wishing that any would perish, but that all come to repentance. We are to let people know that God is our Savior and is the rewarder of those who seek Him. We stand as we close in prayer and worship through music. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for salvation that binds us together as your church. That unifies us. Lord, may we be a church where the old saints are encouraging the younger saints and that the watching world sees your grace and your love visually in this church. Because we know, Lord, that you want to rescue people. You want to draw them back in. And that your love is eternal. We pray that you will use us for your glory and your name.